Good evening, dummies. Episode 189, July 15th, 6.45 p.m. I didn't even see if all my lights are on. Yep, lights are on. Nobody's home. I am tired. Oh, long day. I mean, it wasn't a very heavy work day, so to speak, but I got a ton of sun. You see the Irish and Scottish splotchy red skin, a little bit of color, a little bit of kiss of the sun. If anyone sees my cover, which we'll see, because I'll do it in edit. Do it in post. We'll get it in post. You'll see uh, I'm uh, hiding from the sun in my photo. I I love the sun. I grew up in the sun. I grew up in California. I was a bronze Adonis, like 3% body fat. I swam 50, 60 laps a day. We had a huge pool in our backyard. It had to at least be 100 feet wide. Are long, probably 40 feet, 50 feet wide. It was a giant pool, huge. My dad built a massive pool, and he was a uh, an architect, pool architect. Did that. Uh, he was a dilettante. He did tons of different things. Pharmacist, marine, firefighter, bricklayer, golf pro. I did everything. I thought I did a lot. But he also was a pool pool salesman too, which is interesting. But I, I love the sun. I was in the California sun. And then I saw something happen to my sis. She essentially was mistaken for an African-American several times because we have Greek blood in us and French and surprisingly enough, some African-American and Indian and Dutch, Irish, Welsh, Scottish. I mean, my family obviously got around. My grandmother's had no standards. And so we darken up fairly well. We've got the dark hair and the somewhat dark eyes. And uh, seriously, I haven't been in the sun in, I just don't get out in the sun much. I'm usually indoors doing the show or uh, I'm working in the house and I'll get outside and play ball with the kids or something. But uh, when I was in Houston, I would get out outdoors all the time because I had a pool. But here, just don't do it um, as much as I want to, especially with COVID. But now uh, it'll be interesting to see because I'm 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 just tapped. I'm exhausted. You know what it's like. You get out in the sun and you're just like, ugh. I'm exhausted. So I got to go find a way to work out after this, which is going to suck. So I'm going to have to fight through it. Folks, welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. Welcome to the show. It's Thursday night, as I said, July 15th, 6.47 p.m. I don't know if I did that, but either way, episode 189, we're getting there. I know it's a little slow tonight. I'm I'm a little tired. I have a good show. I have great topics, and it'll be fun to discuss with you, but I don't know. Uh, we'll see if I can get some energy going. I've got my drink. I've got the purple monster ready to go. Got the camera, I've got the lights, I've got the Reagan and Bush getting the Republican mojo going on. Let's rock and roll and talk about what we're going to talk about tonight. Thanks for dealing with my son story. Funny story, Diane Frost was my next door neighbor. She was a Japanese-American girl. Her brother, Doug, her mom was Diane. Dad was David, first dog was Dinky. That's right, all the names started with D. It was clever, I guess. But anyway... I don't know what made me think of that. But anyway, uh, Diane was and is gorgeous. Just Japanese-American, just what you would think. Um, Just beautiful girl. Well, I would swim so much. Now, there is nothing worse for a man than a pair of wet, cold shorts. It's horrible. So say you go in the morning and you get up, and it's a balmy 82 degrees in California. get in the water is a tepid 78 you jump in, you get your shorts wet, you swim for a couple hours, and you get out and you get some lunch, and you throw your, your shorts on the concrete in the shade 
or you hang them up. But either way, they're still wet when you get back. And the worst thing to do is to put those damn things back on because it's freezing cold on your twig and berries. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. So I would go through like swim trunks galore on a weekend, probably 10 different pairs because we were in and out of the water. I mean, all day we had chronic swimmers ear. The doctor would be like, well, this is the spear kids lean to the left, two drops, lean to the right, two drops. Here's some antibiotics. Call me in the morning. Don't go in the water for two weeks, but I know you're not going to listen to me, little shits. And we were back in the water, came back the next day. We have swimmers here again. We were in the water always. So what had happened was I was in, we have a little gazebo that we built because we wanted to change. So my dad put thick screen, you know, almost like uh, that bendable screen material that was really super thick that you could hardly see through. So we could change in this little uh, little patio with an enclosure. So the neighbors that were on the trampoline or climbing the fence, because that's what they did, would stare over at our pool and just look at us and be envious that we had a pool, even though we hadn't ha- didn't have a pot to piss in. And I- I'm, I'm on the back deck, and I start to change, and I go, oh, God, there's only wet shorts left. My dad's like, that's fine. Just wear your boxers. And I'm like, oh, yeah, boxers. Boxers are great. I can do that. Well, folks, they weren't cotton boxers. They were this poly blend white boxers that you could see right through if they got wet. So to get back to my crush on Diane Frost, I was always enamored with her. And, of course, she didn't feel that way about me. Or maybe she did. I don't know. But I doubtful. I was a dork. And as I'm on the deep end of the pool and I'm diving and I'm frolicking and jumping off the, the balcony, three girls who I all had crushes on Kelly Brumby, Diane Frost. And I don't remember the other girl. Obviously she wasn't that pretty. So Heather something on the other end of the tracks, but she was whatever. So, and I have a little, we had a a spa jacuzzi also that was built out in a half circle. So the pool was like this. It was almost like a rectangle. It was like an aircraft carrier deck because it got wider as it went out and then kind of narrowed back in. But The only real spot where you couldn't be seen was where you could hold on to the jacuzzi and cover your body, but your head would stand out, and the three girls were on there. Lo and behold, my sister is waving me off, going, don't get out of the pool. Don't get out of the pool. As I start to get up out of the pool, I stop, and I look, and I look down, and I can see me in all of my glory. Immediately turn bright red, even against my bronze skin. I get up against the jacuzzi. And I sit there like this. The thing about a jacuzzi is there was a reverse flow system in this pool. The jacuzzi was always on. Now, this is when energy really didn't matter. It was cheaper than dog shit. And we would have these solar panels on top, but it was a different solar panel than you think. It would pump water from the pool and put it on this black metal piping and flat roofing. And what would happen is that it would pump through and then drip inside the metal and the sun would heat it up to like 125 degrees and then it would pump it back into the pool. It was free. All you had to do is pay for the pump. But the problem with that is sometimes the pumps kicked on and these jets, you could feel them from across the way. The nice thing is when the pool was cold, you get up against one, you're like, oh, it's fantastic and you would get warm. But when you're wearing a pair of boxers, those jets can do some damage. So Kelly, Heather, and Diane are talking, and I'm sitting there, and it must be 30 minutes. They're talking to my sister, talking to my brother, and I'm just staring there going, oh, my God, please leave so I can get out of this damn pool. Please leave. And as the girls do that, they finally drop off the fence, and I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to sk- skedaddle. We didn't have a ladder. We had to push ourselves up. We were all pretty built up top and had muscle, so we'd push ourselves out. But when I push myself out, 
the boxers cut a pocket of the water and my boxers start slipping. And the jets kick on at the exact same time. This is like the perfect storm. And I am dethroned and derobed in all of my natural glory. Now, this was, remember, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking, you know, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm, 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 this is nothing really to be embarrassed about because they couldn't find it. But that was the problem. And I understood the, the, the importance of having a, 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 a large appendage other than arms and legs because I'm a man. I'm a boy. I know, what, I know what it means. And as I go, holy shit, and I'm already out of the water, I'm committed now. I'm not going to go back in because you're not going to find white boxers floating in the pool because first you can't see them and second they they look like the water because they're almost translucent and i have a choice run for that little gazebo thingy get in get a towel around me and and right when i take the first step out of the pool and i am committed ready to run for the gazebo which is 30 feet away kelly brumby diane frost and heather chick who i can't remember pop up over and i'm like in a matrix style of a slide dodging their glares as they were incoming rounds that were going to pierce my body. And that story, I never let down. At school, the following Monday, it was embarrassing. People wonder why I got picked on. Folks, don't ask me why I went off on that tangent, but that is the story of my youth. I have a few of them, and that one always stuck with me. And that's not why I don't go in the sun. I love the sun, and I absolutely adore it. But I just don't get out of it enough. Anyway, what the hell are we talking about? Certainly not that. And your little dog, too. The Democrats and your little dog, too. They're saying African-Americans are no longer going to be able to vote. That's what Joe Biden's saying. He's sitting up on stage saying the very sanctity of minorities able to vote in this country is at stake. Could that slightly be an exaggeration considering the most minorities have voted ever in history just this last election? And it's predicted to be even larger than that in 2022 and 2024. And the biggest midpoint race ever in the first two years of a four-year presidency first term. The numbers look really good. Doesn't look good for the Democrats because the Republicans seem to be doing very well in states they didn't do necessarily well last election. But is this going to happen? Do you have to fear? Well, let's talk about it tonight. Next, G.I. Jane, part two. G.I. Jane, I saw that movie. I remember we uh, were recently just got out of Coronado. We were hanging out with uh, some Intel guys, and we were shipping out and flying out of San Diego, going into Japan. And it, we were on leave, and a few guys that just went through Buds and rolled out were, were on our station. Uh, a guy named Kennedy, a guy named Kopke, I don't remember who else, but we were all sitting down there and we watched G.I. Jane. And 15 minutes in, everyone's just going, this is complete horseshit. This is just the dumbest fucking movie ever made. But we watched it because Demi Moore was hot and American women were rare in Japan. But the point is, is that G.I. Jane Part 2 is in full effect. There is a woman who has actually went through special forces training. Now, I want to be clear, this is in Bud's. And she qualified for a boat team, but still the level of physical commitment that that takes is incredible. And I want to tell you the story tonight. I'm very, very proud. I'm a fellow shipmate. And I don't care if you're a man, woman, whatever, to get through that training takes an elite person. And I think it's awesome that she is going to support in a way that fulfills her dream, but also kind of sets the bar for other women to achieve this also. There's been several females who've encroached upon this and and set the standard in other military units. And it's great to see in Naval Special Warfare this happens. So we're going to talk about that tonight. G.I. Jane Part Due. And lastly, you want to hear something crazy. 
the Wuhan lab, people are starting to say, wait a second, maybe here we go. Donald Trump again, right? Says something six months later, it comes out to be true. And people are like, oh, well, he, it, it wasn't true when he said it. Now it's possible, but was this a leak? I've got some interesting information and some of the things that have come out that you might want to hear about it that could make this maybe more of a compelling story. If you were on the fence, like Diane Frost and Heather, just hang out and I'm going to give you the nuts and sticks of the whole thing, folks. I don't know where I come up with it. I'm sorry. For how long since its discovery has COVID-19 been deadly? Well, that's pretty easy. From right off the bat. from an undisclosed location always honest always direct so sit back relax don't unfriend me starts right now well dummies thank you for watching i appreciate you being here you know i don't know if diane frost watches my show i'm pretty sure she would be well, I don't know. She might be liberal. I don't know. I, I think some some liberals watch my show and enjoy it, and others don't. But if she ever watches it, I hope you remember the story, Diane. I hope you uh, hope that therapy wasn't too much for you. There, you didn't see much. Trust me, there wasn't much there. I'm sure it didn't have as much of an impact on you as it did me. Welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Matthew Spear. I'm your host, and I created Don't Unfriend Me to have conversation and dialogue to. Take a look at different sides of stories, bring in some opinion, bring in some fact, bring in some supposition, mix it all together and come up with some opinions that maybe aren't the norm, that are a little bit different from left, right or center and present them to you. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you love me or hate me really doesn't matter. Just don't unfriend me. And the don't unfriend me trope is not about canceling people or getting rid of people in your life that are annoying you on Facebook, because let's face it, those aren't really friends. I'm talking about your neighbors, your loved ones, people you care about, new relationships, simply because someone doesn't agree with you or someone believes in something other than you. There's two rules that I have here. You can stay, you can have fun. I have banned six people in my entire time on Don't Unfriend Me out of 22,000. That's not too bad. And those people either have lied, have either spammed or have trolled my people. And you're not going to troll my people's left or right. I don't care who you are. If you're a troll, you're going to go away. That's the way it works. It's not cancer culture. You're a dick. But who are the dummies? You'll hear me talk about the dummies. Well, you're not dumb. It's the dummies. It's an acronym, the Don't Unfriend Me's. Barstool Sports has their stoolies. We have dummies. So anybody who watches the show once, twice, three times a lady or guy or whatever you identify with, you'll officially be a dummy and a dum-dum. Well, the dum-dums are led by Dusty Dinkelman. These are at least one of the six that have been banned. The people who come on here and tend to lie and deceive and make up stories and do whatever they can to be noticed because they can't run their own successful show and have been doing it for 11 years and essentially suck at it and want to project their insecurities and inability to be effective in life on others. So don't be a dum-dum, be a dummy, much better for you. You know what we're talking about tonight, but before we do that, please find me here. Don't unfriend me, host on Facebook and Anchor. You can also find me on Instagram and YouTube. Right here, you'll see a little red folder pop up, click it. That will allow you to subscribe on YouTube. If you haven't stopped by YouTube, please do. I'm trying to grow the channel. Facebook's doing well. We're almost 22,000 people, which is exciting. And if you haven't, 
please like this video or don't like it. You can leave a little negative face or a teary-eyed guy, whatever you want to let me know how you're feeling. Maybe leave a comment. Try to maybe ask a question or challenge a thought. Whatever you want to do, I love the conversation. I'll try to reply to you. And if you would do that, it would mean a great deal. If you're not a social media person, go to don'tunfriendme.com. On don'tunfriendme.com has all my podcasts, has my videos, has my blog and everything else. Stop by there, say hello, leave a comment, and watch a show. Let's get into it tonight. G.I. Jane Part 2. My family just started watching Rambo, and we are so excited because we're going to watch all of the Rambos, and then we're going to watch Top Gun so my children can watch Hot Shots Part 1 and Part 2 so they can laugh incessantly at that fantastic comedy spoof series. We're big fans, so we hope that the kids enjoy it. For the first time, a female sailor has successfully completed the grueling 37-week training course to become a naval special warfare combatant craft crewman, also known as boat crews. The boat operators who transport Navy SEALs and conduct their own classified missions at sea are a very elite unit. Navy officials said they would not identify the woman or provide more details on her, which is customary when you're serving in SOFA. A routine military policy for special operation forces is standard and has been that way since conception since Kennedy created the SEAL teams and UDTs. She was one of 17 sailors to graduate and receive their pins on Thursday. She's also the first woman of women uh, uh, first of 18 women who have tried out for a job as a SWCC or a SEAL to succeed. The sailor's graduation marks just the latest inroad that women have made into some of the military's most difficult and competitive commando jobs. Just five years after all combat posts were open to them, she will now head to one of Naval Special Warfare's three special boat teams, becoming Get Little Creek, Get Little Creek, Get Little Creek. Virginia's awesome. Anyway, becoming the first female to graduate from a Navy. Well, San Diego's pretty cool too. Coronado's nice. It doesn't matter. Female to graduate from a Special Forces uh, Warfare training pipeline is an extraordinary accomplishment, and we are incredibly proud of our teammate. It's not teammate. It's shipmate, but teammate as well. Said Rear Admiral H.W. Howard III. He's the commander of Naval Special Warfare. Like her fellow operators, she dem- that is so cool to hear, she demonstrated the character, cognitive, and leadership attributes required to join our force. She and her fellow graduates have the opportunity to become experts in clandestine special operations, as well as manned and unmanned platforms to deliver distinctive capabilities to our Navy and the joint force and defense of the nation, Howard added. Of the 18 females who have sought a Navy special operations job, 14 did not complete the course. Three of them, however, are currently still in the training pipeline, one for SWCC and two attempting to become SEALs. Overall, according to the Navy, only about 35% of men and women who began the training for SWCC actually graduate. A year ago, a female soldier became the first woman to complete the Army's Elite Special Forces course and join one of the all-male Green Beret teams. One other female soldier has finished training and will report to her assigned special forces group next month, and another will be attending the military freefall school next month, and then will report to her team. So far, no women have successfully completed Marine Special Operations training. Marine spokesman Major Hector Infante Infante said that since August 2016, nine females have attempted to get through the assessment and selection process. He said two candidates made it through the second phase, but didn't meet the performance expectations and along with a number of male counterparts didn't get selected to continue. He said that only about 40% of the more than 1,200 Marines who went through the course since 2016 successfully completed it. 
Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Melinda Singleton said that out of this, out of, as of this month, there are two enlisted females in the Air Force Special Warfare Training Pipeline for combat jobs that opened to women in 2015. One has completed the assessment and selection course and will be eligible for an assignment and special ops job as soon as she finishes some final training. The other woman, other woman is in the preparatory course and hasn't yet made it to the assessment phase. While Navy SEALs often grab the headlines for high-risk missions, the crew that operates the boats and weapon systems during raids and classified ops also go through an extensive selection and training process. The training to become a combatant craft crewman comes after the Navy's initial recruit boot camp and includes a two-month preparatory course, a three-week orientation at Naval Special Warfare Center in Coronado, California, and seven weeks where they learn basic navigation and water skill, as well as physical conditioning and safety. At the end of those seven weeks is a 72-hour crucible, and that's called the tour. That event, which tests their grit and physical toughness, is the most frequent point of failure for candidates. Those who pass move on to seven weeks of basic crewman training to learn combat, weapons, and communications training, followed by a seven-week intermediate-level seamanship course, and finally, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training known as SEER training, and a cultural course. According to Naval Special Warfare, about 300 sailors attempt the SWCC course every year and about 70 complete it. There are between 760 and 800 in the force at any one time. I, for one, am extremely proud. I remember when intel specialists, female intel specialists, weren't necessarily very common in the ranks. And it was a very small rate for intel, about 1,000 at any given time. And when you looked at our school, it was predominantly male. And we started to see females come in. They were an amazing source, a gifted source for learning together. And I would take any of them on gold or blue watch any day of the week. It is good to see. The Israelis have been doing this for years. Pakistanis have been doing it. Many militaries around the world have had women in elite fighting forces. And it's about damn time. Now, there is something to say about Force Recon, Delta, SEALs. This training is still unreachable. But someday, maybe it might happen. Who knows? And it certainly won't be the norm. But this is the type of news that is good. It is a record, but it's also an achievement that should be celebrated. In clandestine operations, you don't get that a lot. You don't get to toot your own horn, and you know, usually it's all about the team. But to have a woman go through this training, which is extremely difficult that most men couldn't complete, without any uh, handicaps... Facing the same obstacles as men, it is quite the accomplishment. For her, I salute her as a teammate, as a shipmate, and honestly, as a peer. Congratulations for your success, ma'am. Godspeed and be safe. Stay frosty and cool. And your little dog, too. Did you know that black people are not going to be allowed to vote in America anymore? That's it. It's true. At least in states controlled by Republicans, that is. And that sounds a bit unlikely, but that's a conclusion you might have to come to if you took seriously what President Joe Biden was saying in Philadelphia Tuesday. Biden decreed Republicans propose changes in the election laws as the 21st century Jim Crow assault that tries to suppress and subvert the right to vote in fair and free elections. And it's an assault on democracy. Interesting. wonder how he feels about his 12 elected officials who got on a plane and abandoned their jobs during open session, went to Washington and his fundraising to stay there instead of doing their jobs, and didn't wear masks on a private charter, and went ahead against, went against the CDC and the, the World Health Organization and Dr. Fucky. Does he have a comment? I don't think so. I think when we asked him about that, he said, tuna fish. This is to be polite, but this is unhinged nonsense. 
Biden is old enough to remember what real Jim Crow voter suppression was like. In fact, he fought in the Civil War. He should know. It meant zero black people voting in places such as Mississippi. It meant threats and violence against black people who tried to register to vote. It meant the unfair application of literacy tests and poll taxes. Requiring voters to present picture ID is nothing like this. Large majorities think it's reasonable. And this is what I talked about last night. These measures, such as reducing the number of pre-election voting days in Georgia, there are zero in Biden's Delaware, by the way, or ending pandemic-inspired measures such as drive-through voting in Harris County, Texas, are not the same. It's not even close. In fact, it's not even a guaranteed right. It's not in the state's constitution or the federal. It's not even in the U.S. Constitution. There are no laws that said you have to have 24-hour voting. There's nothing that says you have to have drive-through voting. There's nothing that says you can have mass mail-in ballots. These aren't guaranteed rights. They are simply pulling back on the ease that they had during COVID because of mitigating circumstances. Those circumstances are over, so we're going to go to the time-tested tradition that has worked for a lot longer than any of us have been alive. Early in his speech, Biden denounced the big lie. This is a reference to Donald Trump's claims that he actually won the 2020 election, but Biden's Jim Crow charge is an even clearer instance of the big lie, and a more dangerous one since it's unlikely to be fact-checked by most media. In fact, they're touting it. They're bolding it on the search function. You can actually go in and type election fraud, and you see everything about Donald Trump. But you see nothing about this. Type in the big lie on Google and see what comes up. There is a suppression of a different voice, voices like mine, who speak out against this stuff. In our own condemnation, by the way, I don't get anything to do this except a bunch of shit from a stalker who's a complete moron. If you want people to condemn a big lie, don't tell one yourself, first of all. In his criticism of Trump, Biden invoked a long-standing norm of American politics. In America, if you lose... You accept the results, he said. You follow the Constitution. You try again. You don't call the facts fake and then try to bring down the American experiment just because you're unhappy. He spoke these words and apparently unaware that they could be applied to him and his own party. You might not understand this if your only news source were New York Times or CNN, but if you try to look at it as Daryl Cooper does in the leftist Glenn Greenwald substack, you might recall that Hillary Clinton and the other Democrats did not accept the results of the 2016 election and spent months, years, advancing the Russian collusion hoax to delegitimize and end the Trump presidency, if you remember. We now know, Cooper writes, that the FBI and other intelligence agencies conducted covert surveillance against members of the Trump campaign based on evidence manufactured by political operatives working for the Clinton campaign both before, during, and after the election. He goes on, we know that those involved with the investigation knew that the accusations of collusion were part of a campaign approved by Hillary Clinton to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security service. If you don't believe me, ask Mueller how many votes were changed in this Russian collusion. As of right now, we can't find any. One hell of a campaign done by the Russians. As Cooper notes, for months, many Trump supporters worried that there might be substance to the Russian collusion charges. Democrats insisted there was. News media such as the New York Times and CNN ignored and ridiculed efforts by the likes of the House of the Intelligence Chairman Devin Nunez to show there was nothing there. Nunez was right, as it became apparent when special counsel Robert Mueller admitted in his report and his pathetic performance on Capitol Hill that he had no evidence of collusion. But the New York Times and other papers didn't return the Pulitzers. They won for their Russian collusion stories. 
New York Times executive editor Dean Beckett acknowledged in an angry newsroom meeting, quote, the day Bob Mueller walked off the witness stand, our readers who want Donald Trump to go away suddenly thought, holy shit, Bob Mueller is not going to do it. As a result, quote, we're a little tiny bit flat footed. I mean, that's what happens when a story looks a certain way for two years. A little tiny bit flat footed translated in English means dead fucking wrong. Have Beckett or other news media leaders confessed error for their misjudgments? Have any Democrats who pursued the Russian collusion hoax, like Inspector Javert, confessed error? Not that I've ever seen, or anyone else for that matter. But calls for committee, or comedy and confession of error are unpersuasive, coming from people who consistently fail to exercise comedy or confess error themselves. Democrats who want to restore respect for the electoral process need to stop calling harmless changes in election laws, voter suppression, and return to Jim Crow laws, and Russia, 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 Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And they and their media protectors need to apologize for their year-long campaign to delegitimize Donald Trump's presidency by advancing a baseless hoax. No matter what you think of his baseless hoax, it doesn't matter. Like John Rambo says, you drew first blood. Do you know that black people are not going to be allowed to vote in America anymore, at least in the states controlled by Republicans, right? I mean, and that's the statement. And here's what it comes down to. You can't believe it because there's no fact and no evidence to that. Every single minority group, including females, including females, had a higher turnout than ever before. This is a massive time for political partisanship, down the middle voting. People are showing up in droves because they want to see change. They at least believe in the system somewhat. They believe that it can make a difference. They believe that there is an opportunity. But if they want that respect, they need to stop making these harmless, horrible accusations. These changes that they want in voter suppression and voter laws and Jim Crow and all of these things that they're saying are going to happen, it's not going to happen. Nobody is trying to subvert elections. People want to ensure that a couple of things happen, predominantly Republicans. Free and fair elections. Fair meaning that the some odd estimated 11 million to 21 million illegal immigrants in this country cannot vote. That every state should have voter ID. And if you want to know the truth, the reason why they were so up in arms and against the Supreme Court justices and Amy Coney Barrett and also Justice Kavanaugh, is there's two things that they have in common as far as their voting record. There isn't much. The two biggest ones are voter ID and election reform, and that scares the living crap out of Democrats. Have you noticed that everything that's made the Supreme Court have to do with the Second Amendment has been either struck down for being unconstitutional or upheld in the affirmative towards the Second Amendment with the Supreme Court, and they've brought Democrats along with them in this vote? This SCOTUS is the most aligned we've seen since 1950 to 1960. They're voting together. And the Republican, supposed Republican justices are siding with the Democrats, and the Democrats are siding with the Republicans. And when election reform comes around and voter ID and stricter confines, we're seeing this on the state level that they're actually aligning with the Republican platform. And this will happen on the federal and the national level, too. Nobody's going to lose their ability to vote. People won't stand for it. They're just saying, you got to get an ID. You got to prove you're an American. That's not so bad after all. We want to hear something crazy? 
According to a TIPP poll done for the Center for Security Policy, 63% of Americans think China should pay pandemic reparations. Sweet. Can we have them go ahead and do reparations for African Americans too? We'll just call it a two for one. Bizarrely, that number only rises to 78% if investigations reveal that the Chinese government released the SARS-CoV-19 human coronavirus on purpose. Well, that just shows you that most of the country is working with a full deck, but there's about 22% that are raving idiots. No matter what they say, they will always believe somebody other than the United States because they hate America. If they released it on purpose, that could be fairly described as an act of war against the rest of the planet. If that doesn't merit reparations, what would? Intriguingly, giving official establishment line early on was that this virus absolutely unconditionally didn't come from a lab. Almost half of the people surveyed believe corona was developed in a lab, and about a quarter of the people surveyed believe it was intentionally released. That is not an idea that has been widely discussed, but it's certainly a frightening possibility because the only reason to release it intentionally would be to do a test run to see what would happen if they released something much more lethal later. Seems unlikely, but given that China is run by ruthless and evil people, it can be entirely, it can't be entirely discontinued. Here's the question. How come they haven't found an animal, a bat, a monkey, a rat, anything with this type strain of coronavirus in it or any of the, the alpha or the, uh, the Greek letters and names, the Delta variants of this disease anywhere in any animal when it came from an animal? All that being said, there are three things worth noting here. The first is that the idea that this virus could have from a lab formed was never really a fringe idea or of of a conspiracy theory at all. There were lots of intelligent and informed people noting it all along. Just the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology happened to be where a massive new virus outbreak happened was enough to make anyone with a half a brain a little suspicious. And they even warned about it in 2011. And we knew the United States government was working there and trepidatious what the Wuhan land was doing in 2018. It's one of the reasons the social media censors should be a lot less sure of themselves today than they were a few months ago. Not so long ago, the social media monopolies were suspending people for speculating that the virus came from the Wuhan lab. They were morally wrong and wrong about the facts. That should give them some pause the next time, but it probably won't because they are shills for the Democratic Party. Third, it's worth noting that, that, that it is absolutely possible that the virus came to be naturally in the Wuhan wet market. Experts could probably figure out where it came from, but that's difficult to do without China's cooperation, which was never going to be forthcoming. Last but not least, no nation should be held responsible simply for having a new virus start up within their borders. That happens, and it is largely beyond our or their control. However, China's dishonesty about the virus allowed it to spread and become a worldwide pandemic. Had China been honest about what was happening from the beginning, it is possible that it could have been contained inside of their borders. In that sense, China is responsible for all of the death and the economic damage across the world caused by the coronavirus. And yes, they should pay reparations. It won't happen, but it should. The question I have for all of you is, if Donald Trump is responsible and everyone says that 600,000, close to a million lives are on his shoulders, why wouldn't you blame the rest of the world's deaths on China, considering that they were the first to get infected and the first to cure? I find it interesting that they so rapidly cured so many. And by curing, it basically means by killing and collecting them, pulling them out of the hospitals, out of their homes, and gathering them together in order to stop 
the, 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 the spread of the virus. Human rights violations. It's fantastic. It's better than any vaccine. We most assuredly should hold China accountable. The United States knew this was happening. Fauci knew it was happening. We were investigating. We supplied 500,000. We, we had stipulations to put $500,000 into the Wuhan lab, and we were actually earmarking more money coming in for it. This testing I've covered over the show, it was essentially a complete kid with a, la- with a lab experiment. It was not regulated. It was actually not endorsed by our government. Yes, Donald Trump turned it back on, and it shouldn't be. This testing that they were doing was playing God with infectious diseases. And one certainly got out. Whether it was intentional or whether it was an accident, maybe we will never know. But our government needs to scream together as loud as they can with the UN, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and the President of the United States demanding China answer the questions that we have on the world stage. This is just as important as Russians being murdered and killed and thrown into pits. This is just as important as people thrown into gas chambers and being burned alive and starved to death in the Holocaust and Auschwitz. This is just as important as anything major in history where people have been lied to by the government. How about internment camps for the camps for the Japanese? How about selling guns to Iran and funding terrorism? These things demand answers. How about who took Kennedy away from us as a president? All of these things throughout history have demanded answers, and for too long we've let our government get away with it. Somebody needs to stand up, we need to hold China accountable, and we need to start asking the scary questions, no matter how scary the answers may be. I'm just sick and tired. The worst beating of my life is when my mom came in my room and said, I am just sick, and I said, and tired. I don't remember anything after that. Bill Cosby himself. Watch it, folks. Liberals and conservatives, at least conservatives, admit they are ideologues. But mainstream liberals from Franklin Roosevelt to Barack Obama and the intellectuals and journalists who love them often assert that they are simply dispassionate slaves to the facts. They are realists, pragmatists, empiricists. Liberals insist that they live right downtown in the reality-based community. And if only their Republican opponents weren't so blinded by ideology and stupidity, then they could work with them. Of course, Republicans are just as guilty as Democrats when it comes to reducing arguments to bumper stickers. We all remember Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, what a tool he was. And he wrote, the president's economic experiment has failed. It is time to get back to what we know works. But the vast majority of Republicans, Ryan included, will at least acknowledge their ideological first principles. Free markets, limited government, property rights. Liberals are terribly reluctant to do likewise. Instead, they often speak in seemingly harmless cliches that they hope will penetrate our mental defenses. Here's some of the things that they talk about and some of the bullshit antics that they do. Whenever I get in an argument with a Democrat, it's always the same thing. Here's one of them. Diversity is strength. Affirmative action used to be defended on the grounds that certain groups, particularly African Americans, are entitled to extra help because of the horrible legacy of slavery and institutionalized racism. Whether objections opponents may raise to that claim, it's a legitimate moral argument. But the argument has been abandoned in recent years and replaced with a far less plausible and far more ideological claim that enforced diversity is a permanent necessity. Lee Bollinger, the president of Columbia University, famously declared, diversity is not merely a desirable addition to a well-run education. It is an essential as study of the Middle Ages, of international politics, and of Shakespeare. It's a nice thought. 
but consider some of the great minds of human history, and it's striking how few were educated in a diverse environment. Newton, Galileo, Einstein had little exposure to Asians or Africans. The genius of Aristotle, Socrates, Plato cannot be easily correlated with the number of non-Greeks with whom they chatted in the town square. If diversity is essential to education, let us get to work dismantling historically black and women's colleges. Whenever I hear about campuses that are still segregated today, it makes me sick to my stomach. It's common to see black and white students eating, studying, and socializing separately in some of these areas. This is rounding out everyone's education? How? Similarly, we're constantly told that communities are strengthened by diversity, but liberal Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam has found the opposite. In a survey that included interviews with more than 30,000 people, it's a large sample size, Putnam discovered that as a community becomes more ethnically and socially varied, social trust and civic engagement plummet. Perhaps forced diversity makes sense, but liberals make little effort to prove it. Now, am I calling for segregation? No. I'm not talking about forced diversity. I'm not talking about forced segregation. Let people live where they want to live. Let them be where they want to be. Don't force anything. And honestly, the free market will take care of itself. I can give you several examples of cities that I lived in, including Five Points in Denver, Colorado, which was a cesspool. Crack cocaine, heroin, prostitution, gang violence all the time. It is one of the most up-and-coming areas of Denver now that has been rehabilitized by investors and businesses and people moving in. And it has a very mixed demographic. And naturally, the free market took care of itself. Once they went ahead and stopped putting regulations and throttling businesses and punishing them in that area and putting strong police force, it was amazing how the citizens took care of themselves. Wouldn't it be amazing if we did that in the cities too? Instead of defunding the police, how about we go ahead and we try to rebuild the community? Violence never solved anything. I love that when a liberal gets a hold of me, starts talking mad shit, disrespecting my family, disrespecting me, calling me every name in the book. And then I say, you know what, man, I really want to punch you in the fucking face. And they go, you threatened me. My little stalker did that and cried like a little baby. Wanted to tell everybody at my work about it too. And everyone's laughing his, at their asses off at him because he continues to try to get into my craw. And I have him so gaslit that I just basically snap my fingers, say one thing on the show. And he spends hours making shows about me. I freaking love it. And violence has solved many things. It's a nice idea that it does it, but it's manifestly absurd. If violence never solved anything, police would not have guns or nightsticks. President Obama helped solve the problem of Omar Gaddafi with violence, and FDR solved the problem too, far too late, of the Holocaust and Hitler with violence. Invariably, the slogan, or its close cousin, war is not the answer, is invoked not as a blanket extortion against the truth and against violence, but as a narrow injunction against the United States, NATO, or Republican presidents from trying to solve threats of violence with violence. We have been under the threat of violence since the creation of the atom and the splitting of the atom. When we had the ability to go ahead and create the nuclear bomb, mutual assured destruction created deterrence. It keeps people in check. Religion used to do that. Religion was, if you did something bad on earth, when you, re- when you went into the corporal plane or when you went into the afterlife or you went to heaven or whatever you believed or with Allah, with 62 virgins, whatever it was, you could be sent to a, a bad place if you broke God's law. Well, that deterrence isn't necessary with everyone now, as religion is waning, and the belief in God is waning. 
But there is always something that will help people make the right decision. And most people, upstanding people, most of the population, besides that 2% that's in a crime element and doesn't really care, people will be deterred with violence. How about the living constitution? It is dogma among liberals that sophisticated people understand that the constitution is a living, breathing document. The idea was largely introduced into the political bloodstream by Woodrow Wilson and his allies who were desperate to be free of the constraints of the founder's vision. And yeah, 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 I know automatically I know who's going to tee off on this and start arguing with it and say, well, you should read a book. That's another liberal's argument. You always know when a liberal's lying. First of all, their mouth is open. Number two, the second way is whatever they say, they don't do themselves. I bet if you asked any liberal that says, read a book, say, which books have you read? Let's go ahead and share our library list and see. And they wouldn't even be able to start with one, except for maybe a communism in you by Marxist Leninist, or possibly watching a movie by Michael Moore and reading the transcript. Wilson explained that he preferred an evolving organic Darwinian constitution that empowered progressives to breathe whatever meaning they wished into it. It is a widely ideological view of the nature of our political system. It is also a font of unending hypocrisy. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, conservatives argued that the country needed to adapt a new asymmetrical warfare against non-state actors who posed an existential threat. They believed they were working within the bounds of the Constitution, but even if they were stretching things, why shouldn't that be acceptable? If our Constitution is supposed to evolve with the times and be living and breathing... Yet acolytes of the living Constitution immediately started quoting the wisdom of the founders and the sanctity of the Constitution. Apparently, the document is alive when the Supreme Court finds novel rationalizations for killing babies' rights. But when we need to figure out how to deal with terrorists, suddenly nothing should pry original meaning from the Constitution's cold, dead hands. Except maybe removing chicken from Chick-fil-A sandwiches at local pit stops. By the way, conservatives do not believe that the Constitution should not change. They just believe that it should change constitutionally, you asshats, through the amendment process. And yes, with the filibuster and the two-thirds vote. Chicken shits. Social Darwinism. Obama has said many times during his presidency, and he denounced the Republican House budgets as nothing more than thinly veiled social Darwinism. Liberals have been trotting out this Medusa's head to petrify the public for generations, and they even did it with Donald Trump. It does sound scary, after all. Didn't Hitler believe in something called social Darwinism? Maybe he did. But no matter how popular the line, these liberal attacks have little relation to the ideas that the robber barons and such intellectuals as Herbert Spencer, the father of social Darwinism, actually followed. Spencer's sin was that he was soaked to the bone libertarian who championed private charity and limited government, along with women's suffrage and anti-imperialism. The reformed Darwinists, namely the early 20th century progressives, loathed such classic liberalism because they wanted to tinker with the economy and humanity itself at the most basic level. More vexing from liberals, there was no intellectual movement in the United States called social Darwinism in the first place. Spencer, a 19th century British philosopher, didn't use the term and wasn't even a Darwinist. He had a different theory of evolution completely. Liberals do what they always do. They misapplied the label from the outset to demonize ideas they didn't like. They never stopped. Another argument, better 10 guilty men go free. Well, yeah, at least until George Zimmerman was in the dock. This was a reflexive liberal refrain. The legendary English jurist William Blackstone, the Fonz at Origo of much of our common law, said, better that 10 guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. Fonz at Origo is essentially 
the entomology of where something was originated or where it derived from. In fact, this 10 to 1 formula has become known as the Blackstone Ratio or Blackstone's formulation. In a brilliant study, 10 guilty men, legal scholar Alexander Volka, read it, trace the idea that it is better to let a certain number of guilty men go free from Abraham's argument with God in Genesis over the fate of Sodom to the writings of the Roman Emperor Trajan, to the legal writings of Moses, to Geraldo Rivera. As a truism, it's a laudable and correct sentiment that no reasonable person can find fault with, but that's the problem. No reasonable person disagrees with it. There's nothing wrong with saying it, but it's not an argument. It's an uncontroversial declarative statement, and yet people say it as if it settles arguments. It doesn't do anything of any sort. The hard thinking comes when you have to deal with and therefore what part. Where do we draw the lines? If we're an absolute principle, we wouldn't put anyone in prison, lest we punish an innocent in the process. Indeed, if punishing the innocent is so terrible, why 10? Why not two? Or for that matter, 200 or 2,000? Taken literally, the phrase is absurd. Letting 10 rapists and murderers go free will almost surely result in far more harm to society than putting one poor innocent sap in jail. When you hear any of these cliches along with, I may disagree with what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it, which is another personal favorite of mine. Understand that the people uttering them are not trying to have an argument. They're trying to win an argument without having it at all. In summation, am I sick and tired of politics? Sick? No. Am I a little tired? Yeah. Here's why. Because it's a constant struggle. I feel like I'm boiling the ocean. There are people who absolutely disagree with me vehemently, and I think that's fine. I think there's people who actually, actually disagree vehemently with me just because I'm me, and that's not fine. I talk about my stalker. I talk about dum-dums. Some of them have made good points, truly. Some of them have had arguments that have made me think and go, okay, I hear you. The conversation I had with my stalker, even though he's a scumbag douche, there were some things that he said that I was like, you know what? I should rethink that. I promise you not one thing I said or have ever said has made him go, I never thought of it that way. It doesn't make him better. It doesn't make me worse. It doesn't make me better. It doesn't make him worse. It simply is that there are some people who you cannot get through to because their psychosis trumps their intellectual level. They're simply just unable to think differently. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's things that I will never move on. The Second Amendment, there's nothing you can say that'll change my mind, that every American should have a gun twice on Sunday. No one will change that. And that's an ideological belief. That is something that's entrenched in me. And honestly, that makes me less of a human. But it doesn't mean I won't have a conversation about it. As long as we're factual and respectful with each other, because otherwise it's a waste of my fucking time. I argue for a living. I argue against people who won't buy something. I argue with my employees when they can't necessarily make a sale happen. I argue when they think they deserve more for less. I argue with customers when they think they deserve something for free. I argue with my wife. I argue with my kids. I argue with people on the show. I argue with myself, with my own demons. Arguing is a waste of time. However, I think it is really important that we never tire of politics. Hear me out. I know people are sick of seeing it on Facebook. I know I've lost friends for it. I don't post it on my page much anymore because people are sick of it. But if we retreat from discussions on how our society should be built and governed, 
we surrender it to the people who stick with it. And isn't that interesting? Whatever we abandon, another man's trash is another man's treasure. If we give up, if we don't believe, if we surrender, then somebody else is going to pick up and run with what we left off without any opposition. And that's a terrifying thought. The passion needed to stick with politics in face of setbacks tends to be found more often in those with the most extreme views and those incapable of compromise. If we surrender our politics to these extremists and there is no dialogue, no common ground, no efforts to find solutions acceptable to everyone, if we do this, we enter the area of politics where it does not matter how much you are despised by one group as long as you keep enough supporters on board, as long as you're the loudest. You can engender as much hatred as you like as apathy has stripped politics of its middle ground. Politics is hard work and often feels unrewarding. It is hard when you feel you are always on the losing end, but nobody gets to see what the world would be like without their opposition. Sometimes things can be worse and you just don't see the effect that you have. This is why dialogue is important. This is why people challenging you is important. But there is a narrative. Freedom of speech doesn't mean you get to say whatever the fuck you want. Freedom of speech does not give you the ability to have any conversation at any time that you want. If you don't want to engage with somebody because you don't like them, if you don't like who they are, if you don't like the way they talk to you, if you just don't want to talk to them, that is just as much your right as it is theirs. People talk in the cancel culture. You want to know what cancel culture is? My fucking dum-dum, my stalker, says... You don't believe in cancel culture, but you, you uh, delete all my shit. Yes, I delete all your shit. I've told you why. You won't listen. But what's cancel culture? You trying to get me fired from my job, which you have absolutely no chance in hell of doing. My owners know exactly who you are, and they think you're a fucking moron. What's cancel culture? You trying to get me fired? You stalking me? You going on my page? You submitting complaints to Facebook about me? You literally making multiple accounts and stalking me and downvoting my videos? It doesn't really affect me. You have no influence. But what's interesting is that that is cancel culture. But once again, you're a liberal. You're a socialist. You're an imperialist, right? Or I'm an imperialist. I'm a baby killer and all veterans suck and are evil. The point is, is that those arguments mean nothing. The truth is, I don't know my stalker hardly at all. I know some things about him. I know I don't like his politics, but he doesn't know me. I don't know him. But somehow, because I wear Reagan Bush, or I've got tattoos, or I served in the military, or he looks like a hippie, all of a sudden he has to be my enemy. Why? Well, I actually look at his actions. I look at his cowardice. I look at the way that he interacts with people who he knows nothing about, and I know all I need to know about him. That's very different than somebody who actually wants to have a conversation to learn something. And there are very few people like that left. I would challenge every one of my listeners to be that person. If there are people who are toxic and are just trying to get your goat and they're forcing you to listen to them because they think somehow that they're magnanimous or they're going to be able to encroach upon your beliefs and change your mind, it doesn't happen. People are entrenched without dialogue and respect and conversation. And if you come out swinging with insults and immediately predict everything that they are about simply because they don't think like you, would you be changed? Would your mind alter? Would you do a 180? And the answer is absolutely not. Then why do you keep expecting others to do the same? Folks, that's it for my show tonight. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being a part of Don't Unfriend Me. Episode 189, we're getting close to 200. That's going to be awfully exciting. 
Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Do me a favor. If you know of a veteran who's struggling, depression, anxiety, traumatic brain injury, depression, whatever it is, PTS, please reach out. 22 veterans commit suicide a day, and they need our help. If you cannot have that conversation, reach out to me. I will make that call with you. If I got to fly out, I will do so as well. If that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click on the VCL link, and you'll be connected to a Skype operator. If you are a civilian, they will also help you too. Just make that phone call. All it takes is one and a little bit of care to save a veteran's life. Folks, thanks so much for watching tonight. I will see you tomorrow. Remember, it is Red Friday. Put on some red. Remember, everyone deployed will be a very fun show tomorrow. I'll see you for episode 190. Be safe, God bless, and have a great night.